0: be seated. And if you have kiddos uh, who are going to children's ministry, you can dismiss those children at this time. I want to give the parents uh, a reminder as the kids are exiting, just a few things about how we're handling the process with our kids in children's ministry. And the first thing to remember is to sign your kiddos in uh, before church at the at the, uh, the check-in counter, which is at the opposite end of the building. You can enter, as you walk in, just so you don't forget, you can enter the building on that end of the building, on those doors, and you wanna check your kids in right away. The second thing is, is just remember to go pick up your kids immediately after the service is over, and then you can come back here and talk, but uh, you know, help a brother or a sister out there, inside there, watching your kiddos, like, go grab them, and then come back. And, yeah, just be prompt in, in doing those things, if you would. We've got a system where we have these name tags so that we're keeping track of what kid is in the, in the children's ministry and what kid isn't and so on and so forth. So those things are very important for us just to make sure that we're taking good care of the children. So check them in right away. And also, um, when you go pick up your child, be sure to sign them out. Uh, there's a clipboard on the place where you check them in. You'll see it. And... Uh, make sure you sign them out so we just have clarity about where our kids are at all times. Well, speaking of children, I was thinking and praying this week about our kids returning back to school, whatever school looks like in your various home. And I was thinking about how helpful a simple reading of 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 is in reestablishing the why behind education, the why behind education, the why behind school, the why behind raising kids, and so on and so forth. Don't you dare think for a second. Don't you dare forget for a second why you're doing what you're doing. That, that will spell tragedy for you. So whether your kid is two years old, or 12 years old, or 20 years old, if you have a child, what's going on there? Is the aim to make sure they have a good job? Is that the main aim? Is that the ultimate why? No, the ultimate why is really spelled out for us in 1 Corinthians 13. So if you have your Bibles, if you look there with me, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, Paul says that uh, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So what are you doing? What is education? What's the point? The point is to make, to raise up children who love the Lord and love other people. The point is to raise loving adults. That's the point. And anything else that falls short of that, no matter how amazing it might be, is accounted as nothing according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, one through three. So what are you doing? With education, what's your aim as a parent raising a child? Your aim is to raise a child who loves the Lord and loves others. And everything else that happens in education gets filtered through that particular ultimate aim. Now, today we're fleshing out what it means to be loving, and we're at this phrase in verse 4 of chapter 13 love does not envy or boast. Love does not envy or boast. And I think you can summarize the main point of what that statement is getting at by saying something like this. If you are to be a loving person, you cannot allow your relationship with the goods of this life to negatively affect your relationship with the very goods of this life. Let me say that another way. I have to say it a few ways because there's some some, some, uh, nuance in a bit of this. Let's say it this way. If you are to be a loving person, you can't allow your relationship with possessions to negatively affect your relationship with people. What does love does not envy or boast mean? What's the point? The point seems to be something like, if you are going to be a loving person, you cannot allow your relationship with possessions to negatively affect your relationship with people. Now, the reason why it's a little bit more complicated is as follows. Let me try to explain this. First of all, when we look back at the very beginning of the Bible, we see that God created a bunch of stuff, and a bunch of that stuff he said was good, and then one thing he said was very good. That's a detail that should not be missed. It's a key detail to actually understanding what you're supposed to be about in this life. God said that everything he created was good, but then when he created people, he said that that creation was very good. So one of the ways that we might talk about the tension described in this passage, love does not envy or boast, has to do with the human tendency to sometimes take the stuff that's good, which is all the created stuff, and elevate it above the thing that is very good, that is people, loving people, so on and so forth. So uh, another way to to talk about this is, is that they are valuing possessions over people. That sounds nice, but there's one problem with everything I'm saying. It sounds like envying and boasting only takes place when physical things are involved, right? That's the problem with my explanation. The use of the word goods or blessings or possessions we tend to think of those words, or even gifts, we tend to think, rather quickly, about the question of envy and boasting being mostly about material things, about money, about possessions, and so on and so forth. But the Corinthian church was right full of envy and boasting, but nowhere in the text that I can see or that I can remember is the boasting or the envy about Physical possessions. So the first point is don't trade, like there's God, goods, and very goods. That's the sort of establishment of things in the world. There's God, love Him most. There's goods, it's okay to love those, and there's very goods. Those go between possessions and the Lord, right? That's the first point. God's goods and very goods. Second point is the goods aren't always physical. And in the Corinthian church, the things that they're envying and boasting about. They're like spiritual gifts, spiritual fathers. Remember uh, early in the book of 1 Corinthians, there's this point where they're all boasting about who baptized them. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Peter. So the things that they're dealing with as it relates to envy and boasting are not necessarily physical possessions. So when you say you can't allow your relationship with goods or maybe gifts, to negatively affect your relationship with the very goods, however you describe that, what you need to think of is, people matter most. But because we are sinners, possessions, blessings, gifts, however you wanna say it, often rise up between us. And it rises up between us in the sense of my ability to love another person is affected by my relationship with this thing, or this gift, or so on and so forth. Now, I use the word relationship, and I say my relationship with this thing. This phrase, love does not envy or boast, is describing two sins on opposite ends of the ownership axis, okay? So just think about this with me for a minute. These are the same kinds of sins, just depending on whether or not you own the thing in question. So for instance, if you own the thing, let's use money as an example just because, let's use wealth as an example just because that's a very quick to mind kind of thing. If I have wealth and I boast in it, I'm negatively affecting my other brothers, right? If I have wealth and I take pride in that, I'm boastful and that's negatively affecting my brothers. If I don't own the wealth, if I don't have wealth, instead of boasting, I'm envying. This is the temptation anyway, right? The temptation when you don't have the thing is to envy. The temptation when you do have the thing is to boast. And that's why you can say that boasting and envying are just two sins on the spectrum or the axis of ownership. And while we're talking about this, just to be super quick, sometimes people wonder what the word jealousy means as it relates to envy and so on and so forth. So let me try to spell this out really quickly for you. There are four basic words that involve sins related to this issue of materiality, or not materiality, uh, relate, uh, existing to this, this, this problem of ownership. So here's how it works if you don't own something, you might envy those that do, or you might covet. And what's the difference between envy and coveting? Well, envy is sort of like disliking the person who owns the thing that you want, okay? Coveting is kind of like a lusty, like desiring the thing, okay, but those are both sins on the don't, I don't own this kind of spectrum, so if I'm not wealthy, then envy could be like that stupid wealthy person over there, there's no way they got that money earnestly or honestly, and look at them, they're like all about the world, they don't really care about Jesus, because clearly not, and so on and so forth, that would be envy, or I could be like, man, I would really like some of that money, (laughs) that's coveting, okay, Coveting has more of a lusty kind of vibe, and envy has more of like a resentful, you know, Karen kind of vibe. All right. Uh, I, sh- I shouldn't say that. I hate when people use that word. Anyway, I'm sorry about that. Okay, so, so that's, the, that's the side of the spectrum that's not ownership. Now, on the side of the spectrum of owning the thing, I have the wealth, and one particular sin I could fall into is boasting. I'm like, have you seen my wealth? You know, have you seen how wealthy I am or talk about how wealthy I am or so on and so forth? I remember, you know, growing up in various circles where we were close to Lake of the Ozarks. Every once in a while, someone would just drop like, well, we were at the lake house this weekend. It's like, okay, you little jerk. You know? It's like a casual boasting. Uh, so if you own the thing, one temptation is to boast and another one is to be jealous. So people get uh, jealousy and envy confused. They're very different actually. Because envy is what you do when you don't have the thing, and you're, like, you're kind of angsty toward people who do have it. And jealousy is the thing that you, when you do own the thing, and you're kind of angsty toward people who might take it away. So you've got this spectrum of ownership. If you own this stuff, two potential sins, probably of many, exist. If you do own the stuff, boasting and jealousy would be two sins. Boasting being, hey, look at me. Jealousy being sort of like driven to protect this thing you have and really looking at everything else with suspicion as it relates to you keeping this thing you have. Um, There's a Paul Simon lyric that said, a man loved his wife in a jealous way. He said he wore his passion for his woman like a thorny crown. Like he's always, like his whole need to possess her dominated his whole life. So that's if you own the thing. If you don't own the thing, then the two sins that are likely to be possibilities are envy, kind of thinking ill of the person who has it, or lust, coveting, like really, really wanting the thing in a sinful way, especially when it belongs to someone else. Now, what we need to establish now is that this isn't just a materiality issue. There are all kinds of less obvious ways that we can envy and boast. So let's take, for instance, someone has a boyfriend and like this girl has a boyfriend and she is just like a never-ending drippy faucet of boyfriend references. Well, the other day me and my boyfriend, you know, social media, everything, boyfriend, 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 That's boasting. Let's say someone doesn't have a boyfriend. They're looking at the person with a boyfriend thinking, seriously? or they only have a boyfriend because of an assigned some sinful value or reason or so on and so forth. You see how envy and boasting go together? Let's use another one, body type, like somebody's in shape, you know? So if let's say that you are, you are a brick house, like you are, you've just got it, you've, you've got a great physical figure. Well, obviously one way to boast in that would just be immodesty, right? Or there's lots of ways to boast of that. But you're flexing in some way or another. You're sort of displaying. You're sort of announcing. Well, then there's the person who doesn't have that. And they're constantly looking at the person who has that with envy and also judgment. And maybe sometimes also coveting. And the person that has that, maybe that maybe they boast or maybe they're super jealous. And like they don't actually do real life with regular people anymore because because real life with regular people means eating carbs or whatever. And so they're like ruining relationships because they're jealous for their 2% body fat. So ownership just predicts which side of the axis you fall on, but the ultimate issue presented in this particular segment of 1 Corinthians 13 is, is that if you are going to be loving you have to make sure that stuff doesn't get in the way of you loving people. Because the stuff might be good, but God said that people are very good. The truth is, is that if we had properly been discussing envy as a sin for a considerable length of time, because because with the advent of the internet and pornography in particular, there was this immediate sort of understanding amongst the church. It's like, we have got to deal with the sin of coveting other people's wives or lust and so on. And so we've really, really touched on that. Like, we need to keep touching on it. But this internet thing has also enslaved a massive group of people into these other patterns of envy and boasting. And these are serious sins. Do not wink at the sin of envy in particular. Uh, You you do not understand how, how corrosive this sin is. And I'll tell you just point blank, like what that will do ultimately is it will put you into a group of losers. Because envy attracts, envious people attract envious people. And you become allergic to other people's happiness. You become allergic to happiness you become allergic to success and you start attracting and being attracted to other people who are also driven by this sin that they're not repenting of don't don't blink don't don't wink at envy it's a terrible thing another place that you could see this that's also like not a possession is disposition disposition personality traits and so forth some people C.S. Lewis does a marvelous job talking about this in Mere Christianity when he discusses niceness. Some people are just born with a disposition that makes it easier for them to be happy and self-confident, less neurotic, you might say. And so they seem to glide through life on a golden skateboard (laughs) with angels' wings, you know? zero turbulence zero ish like these people just or they have just this crazy amount of confidence and you know people that have that can easily sort of look down on people who don't have that and in a way that they don't even know boast in this sort of self-forgetfulness that they have and look at people who like are riding on a skateboard without any wheels at all and it's like everything is gravel to them right you know you can look at someone like that, and you can, if you have the disposition that makes things easy or simple, you can look at the person who is deeply neurotic and really struggling with things, you can just like scoff at them because you don't realize that you have been given a gift from God. This is not a personality that you earned, this was just God's choice to deposit this little drop of golden sunshine in your soul, you know. And so you could accidentally turn even personality traits against your brothers and sisters. It's like, why is that person always so mopey? It's like,
1: it's like,
0: cause God made them that way, man. It's like they gotta, they gotta repent of it. They can't stay mopey, but like, I'm just gonna be honest, like they got a bad hand. <laughs> And Lewis does this beautiful thing in Mere Christianity where he says, you know, some people just glide through life. And I think he uses the illustration or the example of this car that works perfectly and so on and so forth. And then he's like, some of you have the clunker that is struggling to stay on the road. And it's, it's one of those areas, disposition, it's one of those areas people don't understand. And Lewis is actually very wisely says, like a lot of this has to do with what kind of childhood did you have? Some people had deeply damaging childhoods, and as a result, their car is just (laughs) going all over the road. So when we say that this summary, love does not boast or envy, is about good versus very good, that good can be anything, really, anything that's good. Uh, Marital status. There are countless people who envy those who are married and others who envy those who are single i heard a pastor this week say there's always an er there's always an er stronger faster newer better and it's all these er's that god has chosen in his wisdom to not evenly distribute resources it's just that's what he decided take it up with him But in his wisdom to do so, we are allowed the opportunity to learn to love in a way that is not respective of resources, either respective of owning them or not owning them. A lot of people don't realize how envious they are of people in positions of influence. They really wish they had the spotlight. Now what they would do with it, I don't know, but they really wish they would have the spotlight and so they project all sorts of things onto others and then there are people who have the spotlight, they have a position of influence and they sort of use it as a hammer. You can keep going on and on. I mean, it it probably would do as well, to be honest, to just fill 45 minutes of examples because the examples are endless. So this question of ownership or not ownership sort of dictates which particular sin you might be prone to. But let me just make this part really clear. In my notes, I have pause and pray for authenticity. And I didn't mean pray, really pray. I meant pray, me pray as I'm preaching. I want to be clear about something. Authenticity is, a, is the only option here. There is a false kind of humility where the boasting isn't vocalized, but it is there and it is there in spades. And you better believe it, you better believe it that if that's you, it is coming in between you and your brothers and sisters. It is affecting your ability to love people. Just because it doesn't express itself, now, I'm glad that it doesn't express itself to be honest, but we need to pray for something more than behavioral modification. Because you better believe it, that nine times out of ten, that internal pride is manifesting itself, even when you don't speak of it. And there's also a false kind of anti-envy, a false kind of, I'm so happy for you. Boy, listen to this. Please listen to this. There is a false kind of restraint. Someone is in, someone's restraining the verbal articulation of their envy, Envy is almost always never verbal. It's almost always going on internally. So there's lots of people who will say, I'm so happy for you when you have this or that win, and that is simply not true. They are not happy for you. They are concerned, upset, sad, maybe even angry over your success. There's a proverb, it's Proverbs 23, verses six through seven. It says, do not eat the bread of a stingy man and do not crave his delicacies for he is keeping track, inwardly counting the cost. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. And that verse just means there are people who say, yeah, come and enjoy all that I have, but what they really are doing the whole time is counting what it's costing them. They're counting every bite. And the end of the proverb says something like, you know, that food's going to turn to gravel in your stomach. It's not worth it. Don't, don't, don't indulge. Don't, don't be around people like that. Well, f- let me tell you something just straight up. If you're an envious person, it comes through more than you realize. And this is the other thing that, like, damages your relationships. People know you don't mean it when you say you're happy for them and they eventually decide not to eat with you, quote-unquote. Getting to the heart of this issue, not simply learning how to talk better, not simply learning how to correct what we say, but to actually allow the Lord to address our hearts, that's, that's really necessary. So how do we do that? The goal so far as it relates specifically to envy, by the way, is if you can learn to be genuinely happy for other people, then you will almost always have a reason to be happy. Do you want to be happy? It's like generally in life, learn to actually be happy for other people because somebody somewhere is doing well. How do we get our hearts in conformity to this. Well, let's look, as we ought to in every area when we're asking for our hearts to get transformed, let's look at envy and boasting in light of the gospel. Envying has something to do with forgetting what God's heart is like. Because God is a generous God, and he knows how to give gifts to his children. I think envy is, for Christians, one evidence of a common mistake that Christians make. And that is to think of the gospel mainly as a means of pardoning you from your sin. That that was the ultimate goal of the gospel. And I think that when envy shows up, and there are other sins like this as well, but when envy shows up, one of the things I would look at first is do you understand that the pardoning of your sin was not the goal of the gospel? The pardoning of your sin was something that needed to happen to accomplish the goal of the gospel. And the goal of the gospel being God wanted to be your dad. So when you're envying, you just are forgetting that the God of the universe has sent his son to die for you, not to pardon you from your sin alone, but to make you his so that he could spend eternity making you an object of his lavish kindness. This enviness, this stinginess, friends, let's be honest, it's satanic it is anti gospel because the gospel of god is god's generosity romans 8:31 says what then shall we say to these things if god is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things I feel like in this particular subject, CJ Mahaney hits home runs often on this particular subject. And I found one of his quotes from a time when he addressed Christian singles. But you you can substitute the nouns for whatever you're struggling with if it's not this. He says to a group of Christian singles, your greatest need is not a spouse. Your greatest need is to be delivered from the wrath of God. And that has already been accomplished for you through the death and resurrection of Christ. So why doubt that God will provide a much, much lesser need? Trust in his sovereignty, trust in his wisdom, trust in his love. And friends, I'll I'll tell you straight up, you have heard that a million times and there's one thing that CJ's too nice to say. For that To soak into your bones, you need to repent of your envy. Repent. Acknowledge it as trashy thinking, unworthy of your position in Christ. Repent of it. And then fill that now and then, spouse, with whatever it is for you. But only after you have come to the Lord with a broken and contrite spirit and said, what in the world was I thinking? Envy is wholly inappropriate of someone who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and adopted into the family of God and now can call themselves and is and are children of God. So envy needs to see more clearly the heart of God Boasting, I think, you could say, needs to see more clearly the heart of man, <laughs> and here's what I mean by that. If you have your Bibles, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul has boasting kryptonite loaded up in a machine gun, an AR-15 set to three bursts, three round bursts, and he just fires and shoots envy fatally with or boasting fatally with three questions. These questions are kryptonite to pride. And since we all struggle with pride, even when it actually makes no actual sense, in our if we actually like took inventory of our lives, like why are you prideful again? We all struggle with pride, and these are the bullets to kill pride. The questions you simply ask yourself. Who sees anything different in you? The answer is you're not special, sunshine. You're not special. Second, what do you have that you did not receive? What, what is it that you possess that you did not receive? What, what exactly is it? And here again is where our, 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 our inevitably human sloppiness when it comes to applying the gospel shows up. And we'll be like, well, God was gracious. He forgave me for my sin, but now my salary, that's for me. No, no. You have nothing that you did not receive? And then the third question, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Receivers don't boast. Do you want to know the antidote to most of this stuff? And of course, this is my maybe third main lesson in life. Keto, serving people, and (laughs) gratitude. Keto, serving people, and gratitude. Those are my three. Gratitude fixes both sides of this equation, doesn't it? Once we acknowledge and announce over and over to our own selves, God has given me so much. He has blessed me with so much. Well, it's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a deflator, both to envy and to pride, isn't it? See, Paul is understating, especially with that last question, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul is asserting that if you properly understood grace, you could not boast. So when you find yourself boasting, you know what the problem is. Well, let's talk about another place where our hearts are changed. So one way to change our hearts is to compare or to to, to look at our envy and our boasting in light of the gospel. But there's another place the Bible points us, and that is to look at our envy and boasting in light of heaven. Look of our envy and boasting in light of heaven. In heaven, there will be no lack. If you you forget about heaven, you are in for a really rough go of life. I don't know of a better way to mess up your life than to view this life as all there is. It is almost a guarantee that you will spin your wheels and make a mess of things. If you want a... The, the shorthand way of screwing up your life, view this life as the only life you get. Well, when it comes to envying and boasting, it does the heart good to remember that this lifetime is like the first inning of one of those extra inning, already too long baseball games. Sorry, Wes. That this whole lifetime, your entire lifespan is the first inning Almost all of the baseball left to play happens in the next life. How does understanding that correct your heart when it comes to envy and boasting? Well, Paul writes to the wealthy in First Timothy. And again, there are many different kinds of wealth. Wealth of disposition, wealth of health, wealth of wealth. So you could substitute rich or wealth with all sorts of things of value that you might boast in. And listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, here's here's where heaven kicks in. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The temptation to boast in light of heaven is simply, you know, I'm... I'm on third base, but it's the first inning of an infinite inning game. It would be really dumb to feel as if I have arrived. Rather than celebrate, I should get to work sharing what I've been given. How about envy? How does envy get transformed in view of heaven? Well, I think the first thing to the envious people, I would say, you need to know, envious people won't be in heaven. You just need to know that. Galatians 5.19 is just one sampling of many verses which speak directly of this issue. Galatians 5.19-21, through 21. now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The first thing you need to know is there won't be envious people in heaven. There are a number of places in the New Testament where that is made clear. And obviously, there are all sorts of reasons for this, but one of them I would want to remind you of is that heaven is a place where we will be occupied mostly with celebrating the good fortunes of our brothers and sisters. What's like one of the main things we'll do in heaven? We will celebrate the rescue, the redemption, the blessings, the honoring of our brothers and sisters. We will celebrate what God has done for them, what God is doing for them. And he has no place in that big of a party. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives three parables in a row, all pertaining to something being lost And then found. And it's the parable of the lost sheep, and the lost coin, and the lost son. And at the end of every one of these parables, it's a happy ending because the person, I feel like it's a happy middle too, because the person wants to find the thing they lost. It's nice to think that God, it's more than nice to think that God wants to find the thing that ran away. But it all ends with a happy ending because they all find the thing they lost. And what do they do when they find every single instance? What do they do when they find the thing they lost? They call others to celebrate with them. At the end of the lost sheep parable, the man finds his sheep, and Jesus says it this way. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then in the parable of the lost coin, at the end of that parable, the woman finds her coin, and she, this girl just likes to party. She's partying over a single coin, but uh, she's just looking for an excuse. But Jesus summarizes it, and when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then Jesus pivots into a parable that has almost no fictional qualities whatsoever. It's a very transparent parable. It's, it's, not, like, it's not like calling people sheep or coins. It tells the story of a man, a young man, who in absolute arrogance and rebellion walks away from his father and spends all of his inheritance on prostitutes and feasts. And when he comes to an end to himself, he goes home. And his father is actually waiting for him. His father runs to him. And so all of the uh, facade of the parable, he's, he's telling these all three in a row. And like the murky, murky clarity. It's like, this is life, boys. This is how life is. We walk away. God... providence allows us to come to an end of ourselves and then the father finds us and at the end of that one he says but the father said to his servants bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate it's not super common to see three parables in a row like this, and certainly three parables with exactly the same point. Why, why did Jesus have to do this? Why, why was Jesus giving these parables like this? The whole passage begins by saying that there were the Pharisees and the scribes, and they were ang- ang- angry and upset with Jesus because he was spending time with tax collectors and prostitutes. No offense, but the Pharisees and the scribes were being sort of that envious bridesmaid. Like verbally they were with it, like yay, God. Internally they were a judgment factory. And Jesus had to say, you know what happens in heaven when good things happen to bad people? we rejoice. We celebrate. That's what happens. The sense is, to be honest, that the Pharisees and the scribes are showing very clearly they're not going to be there by how they're acting toward Jesus and toward these people that he's spending time with. And this seems to be the biggest criticism of both envy and boasting, and that is that at the end of the day, we're all just lost things that got found. What are we boasting in exactly? And why would we be shy in celebrating someone else's good fortune? Because at the end of the day, we're all just lost things that got found. Now, as it relates to communion, I'd like to address a part of the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 that I never really talk about. Paul says in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians 11, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does that mean? What does it mean? What is Paul warning? And then Paul goes on from there and he says, "If this is why many of you are sick and have fallen asleep and so on and so forth. Judgment has fallen on this church for the way that they have partaken in the Lord's table. It's like, well, what's going on there? What does it mean to properly discern the body? Well, this, if you'll just go back and read it on your own, this passage is saying very specifically that these people were bringing their envy and their boasting with them to the table. That's what it means to partake in an unworthy manner. They were bringing unrepentant envy, unrepentant boasting, and partaking in the table with divisions and competitions and strife and envy and jealousy and all the stuff they were coming up to the table and they were they had not left that stuff behind they had not repented of it and so the table is set before us it's a table of grace you don't have to earn your way to this table this is this is the celebration that we are all lost things found but do not come here with your envy unrepented of do not come here with your boasting unrepented of take a moment and Acknowledge the Lord if the Spirit is speaking to you. Acknowledge the Lord, God. I need your forgiveness. I need your forgiveness, and I need you to help me not only to control this, but to change this. And Lord, I can't do that. So once again, I'm in a position of needing something from you that I can't earn. So Lord, please do the work in my heart that only you can do and change my heart and remove this envy and remove this boasting and remove this jealousy and remove this coveting. Let's pray. Well, Father, just on behalf of people that I know and love, the room full of people here today, I just pray your deepest blessings on them in every way possible. I pray that their cup would overflow in every way possible. And I pray, God, that in the places where you decide that their cup's not going to overflow, that you give them peace and contentment and joy, even joy in someone else's blessings. But, Lord, I get the sense that this message has pricked some hearts. And so I'm just praying for for my brothers and sisters and asking, God, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would encourage them give them the uh, faith they need to repent but then give them the faith they need to believe that they are forgiven and to believe lord that you will make their hearts more like christ's you've promised to do it Lord. you say a broken a contrite spirit you will by no means despise and so before we come and partake of this table which celebrates a broken lord and savior god We come to you with broken hearts and confess that we are often using possessions, things, talents, personalities, whatever, status. Using that stuff in a way that's actually coming between our ability to love our brothers and sisters. Lord, would you please forgive us of that and remove it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: sing.